0: And, you know, except perhaps for the crisis of the Civil War, we are in the biggest crisis to our democracy in the history of the United States.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Professor Alan Lichtman of American University is a historian with a long career that's filled with writing, expert witness testimony, political predictions, and media appearances about American politics. In one of those appearances, episode 502 of this podcast, we discussed his history, you should listen to that. But Alan is back to discuss his new book, and it's a good one. It's called 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. I found his placement in historical context of Trump's many challenges to our institutions very helpful and interesting. And he has many suggestions for how to fix things that deserve that kind of attention. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Professor Alan Lickman. Professor Lickman, Alan, how do you want me to?
0: Whatever you're comfortable with. I've been called many, many things.
1: Alan, you've been on my podcast before. We went through extensively your history. So I want to jump this time right into the recent book of yours that I read called 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. If you would tell me, it seems pretty obvious, but why did you write this book?
0: I wrote this book because I was so alarmed. By the Trump presidency. I was alarmed not so much by Trump policies. That's not the issue I examine in my book. But I was alarmed by the way in which Trump attempted and in many ways succeeded in smashing through some very serious loopholes in our democracy, which I call the 13 cracks. But this book is much broader than just an analysis of Donald Trump. Rather, I point out that these loopholes are still open, that they could be exploited by another president, and, of course, they could be exploited by a Trump-2 administration. But I'm not satisfied just with exposing the 13 cracks. I also, in the book, for each of the cracks, propose real solutions.
1: What I liked about the book... And honestly, if you haven't had your publisher send it to every congressman, then you should. I should. Because they ought to read it. What I liked about it was, you know, I've been somewhat of a student of American history. It helped me remind me about a lot of challenges that we've had in many other administrations in many of these topics. And it put so it put a lot of this in context in a way that I think, helps you understand, and makes it more fair to Trump, uh, even though in a lot of cases he did things that were more egregious than had come before. Not always. How did you go about putting this together? How much effort did it take?
0: Well, it didn't take as much effort as you might think. I'm 74 years old. I've been studying history for more than 50 years. So a lot of this was prompted by the knowledge I already had of deep American history. I also am a close follower of Donald Trump's career and his presidency. As you know, I wrote the book uh, The Case for Impeachment. It was published in April of 2017. The first and also <laughs> predicted his impeachment at the same time I predicted his election in the fall of 2016.
1: Do you think that we just had the worst president in American history?
0: Boy, you know, that's a tough call because there have been some really egregious presidencies. You know, James Buchanan was complicit in slavery and the coming of the Civil War. Of course, Herbert Hoover presided over the Great Depression and really didn't have any solutions to it. But certainly in terms of threats to American democracy, which is really at the core of our good society, Trump is the worst president ever, I think, by a margin.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Of the 13 cracks that you enumerate, which do you think is the most concerning?
0: Oh, they're all so concerning. Probably the attempt to subvert our democracy by denying the results of elections and subverting what our democracy really has had as a hallmark since the election of 1800. And that is the peaceful transfer of power. You know, so many other societies don't have that. And uh, that's one of the flaws of flawed democracies or authoritarian systems all over the world. And sadly, as I point out in my book, democracy is not flourishing these days. Democracy is, in fact, in decline. Uh, democracies can die. And sadly, Trump really poses a threat to the death of our democracy in the United States.
1: I think that there's a consensus in the progressive side that what happened after the election on January 6th, and even continuing to this day, his effort to persuade the red team, that he was cheated out of the election. For his ego, he tried everything to not just win the election outright, but then to win it in nefarious ways. For someone who might doubt this, could you go into some of the detail about what was so different in that effort than what has gone before?
0: Certainly. This is where attempts by Donald Trump to subvert our elections and destroy the peaceful transfer of power ties in with another crack, and that, of course, is presidential lying. Trump's not the first president to lie or to lie consequentially. You know, we have George W. Bush, uh, we have the Eisenhower administration, but no one has lied like Donald Trump. And so you put together his lying with his attempt to subvert elections, and that creates a unique peril to our democracy. First of all, we have never before in the history of the United States, even in the hotly contested controversial election of 1876, where you had votes from three states endowed and you had to form a special commission to finally resolve it, the losing candidate has always conceded. Donald Trump is the first candidate in the history of the United States not to Concede. He is the first candidate in the history of the United States to try to overturn certified election results by illegitimately pressuring the vice president, who has no authority to do so, to unilaterally uh, overturn the results and declare Donald Trump the winner. He even tried to do that in the individual states to try to get election officials and Republican legislators to overturn the will of the people. And hand the electors of those states to Donald Trump. And obviously, we saw the effort to stymie the entire process of the counting of votes with the January 6th insurrection, which, by the way, in many ways, Trump has applauded and supported, not just instigated. We now have evidence that he pressured the United States Department of Justice to overturn the results of the election and declare him. A winner. And the key thing here is, you know, Donald Trump propagates lies, big and small. But this is the biggest of Donald Trump's big lies about the election. And the big lie is the favored technique of dictators throughout history. You know, tell a lie loudly enough and often enough and people will come to believe it. Now, of course, we know it's a lie on many, many bases. Republican elected officials, Republican administrators of elections in every state, whether it's Georgia or Arizona, have declared the election was secure and fair. Donald Trump's own head of cybersecurity, who then fired because he said this, said it was the most secure and fair election in the history of the United States. Even Attorney General Bill Barr, who has a history of always doing Donald Trump's bidding Has said, you know, there's no evidence of any fraud that's affected the outcomes of elections. The New York Times contacted election officials in every state and they all affirmed the election was secure and fair. Donald Trump and his allies launched, oh God, dozens of lawsuits, all of which were rejected by nearly 90 federal and state court judges, including a number of judges appointed by Donald Trump himself. The United States Supreme Court, with three Trump-appointed judges, would not countenance lawsuits from the state of Texas supported by Donald Trump to try to overturn the results of elections in other states. Every charge about a stolen election has been thoroughly litigated in multiple courts, by Trump-appointed judges, Republican-appointed judges, Democrat-appointed judges, state judges, and every single one of those charges have been rejected. But here's the sad thing, is with this big lie, Donald Trump has apparently persuaded most uh, Republican voters and indeed perhaps most Republican elected officials to buy into this falsehood that threatens our democracy. So it's no longer just Donald Trump. It's really the entire Republican Party that's complicit here. And the Republicans in states like Texas and Florida, Iowa, have used this big lie in a classic example of circular reasoning to claim, oh my gosh, we need to uh, establish election integrity. And the way they try to do it is to adopt all kinds of voter restrictions that impact most heavily on minorities who are strongly democratic, and to make elections much more subject to partisan intervention. It's a tragedy.
1: It's a tragedy, and it's something where, like you say, there's an ongoing effort in the states and in the court of public opinion through Trump and his team to keep moving that. He's going to run for election again, most likely, on this kind of platform. He's already
0: raised hundreds of millions of dollars on this lie. And most of it's going to his pocket, not to pay for litigation or any other efforts.
1: I can't think of another president or presidential candidate who lacked this commitment to democratic values, stepping down when you lose. Richard Nixon stepped down when he lost, you know, Al Gore when he lost by 537 votes in Florida
0: in a very, very dubious election count.
1: And I remember from from just your book, which I just read, uh, Tillman in 1876, after that commission that you talked about, he accepts it. Like that. that commitment to democratic values, there's only one guy who hasn't shared that that has been elected or came close.
0: You know, I quote James Madison in my book, you know, the father of the Constitution, the founder of checks and balances. And he said, you know, you can put all the checks and balances in you want, you can put all the laws in you want, but ultimately, ultimately the health of our democracy depends critically on virtue, right? You know, if people disregard uh, democracy, disregard the law, disregard the Constitution, then all the paper safeguards don't work. And we have never seen such a lack of virtue, as you point out, in our history, not only in the part of Donald Trump, but now, sadly, on the part of much of the Republican Party.
1: For each of the cracks which you kind of organize this into, you propose some remedies. On this particular crack, which is protecting election results, what do you propose there?
0: I propose a a number of things. Number one, we need to pass new federal voting rights legislation, the kind of legislation that would protect in a true way, not in this way of disempowering voters, the integrity of our elections, including safeguards against the partisan manipulation of elections, which is at the core of a lot of what we're seeing Republicans enact in the state and essentially what Donald Trump is advocating? Basically, he's advocating partisans should control elections, uh, not the voters. We need a reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, which would restore the process of preclearance. You know, all of these terrible restrictive laws that are being passed in the states. If we still had the process whereby you had to go to the Justice Department and get rules and laws that impact voters pre-cleared, then we might have been able to stop this attack on democracy. But unfortunately, in a five to four decision in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court invalidated the pre-clearance procedure. Now, the only approach is to file a lawsuit after the laws are enacted. And as we know, these lawsuits are expensive. They're difficult to prove. They can take years to litigate with extremely uncertain results. So there's no good mechanism to stopping uh, this onslaught of our democracy. And I've pointed out ways of doing it. I also said we need to rewrite the Electoral Count Act, which goes all the way back to 1887, which you know prescribes procedures for making sure the counting of the votes and the certifying of the election is fair. It's a very convoluted, incomplete law. We need a new one.
1: The problem with almost all of your remedies, as you're well aware... I'm well aware. ...is that we don't have 70 Democratic senators. We don't have 67. I'm just thinking we need a few extra just to uh, get through the filibuster and count for the mansions of the world. Almost all of your remedies involve acts of Congress.
0: Not all of them. A lot well, of them. You know, three-quarters of them, but a lot of them don't, actually.
1: Given that some do, and some of the key ones particularly in this category, do. I would have loved it if the new administration, there's a lot of these things have been proposed, if they would have passed it and our whole legal system had changed to protect us from a a bad president. That wasn't prioritized and I suspect it wasn't because we don't have the votes to pass it. They may undo the filibuster or put a hole in the filibuster for this. On the pure politics, of fixing the problems that we have. We've talked about one of one and a half of 13 cracks. What the hell are we going to do? How are we going to get this done? It's
0: very disparating. As I said, I've been studying U.S. history for more than 50 years. And, you know, except perhaps for the crisis of the Civil War, we are in the biggest crisis to our democracy in the history of the United States. And as a student of history, I am totally frustrated as to why the Democrats don't bust the filibuster, or at least, as you say, put a hole in the filibuster for voting rights, which, as the Supreme Court has said, is the most fundamental of all rights. If you lose your voting rights, our democracy goes right down the drain. As you know, the filibuster is retrograde. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the law. And its history is of segregationists using the filibuster to try to stop civil rights legislation. It doesn't have, you know, a good history, and there is absolutely no good reason not to break it.
1: The only reason I could think not to break it would be that it might be useful uh, if we had Trump too. You You know, know.
0: if we had Trump too, the truth is, the Republicans wouldn't hesitate to break the filibuster if they thought they needed to do it. I've been saying this for years. I have a major criticism of the Democratic Party. Republicans are united. And they're ruthless. They will pursue the gaining and holding of power with whatever it takes. The Democrats just haven't been able to match that kind of purpose in defense of our democracy. You know, they just don't have a solid spine, and they tend to be, as we see, you know, with Joe Manchin, Kristen Simena, more uh, divided than the Republican Party. Democrats need to grow a spine, and they need to do a lot more, as you say, including busting the filibuster, including much more aggressive pursuit of the criminals that uh, pursued the January 6th and engaged in other criminal acts. I've known Merrick Garland since the 1960s, believe it or not. We were part of uh, the debate community way back when. I was debated for Brandeis, and the debate coach for Harvard. And uh, I think he might have been one of the finest federal judges in our history. I'm not certain that he's aggressive enough. You know, as Attorney General, the temperament you need for Attorney General is different than the temperament you need to be a great federal judge like Garland was. The jury's out. I also cannot fathom what's going on with those prosecutors in New York State. They have been sitting on this tax fraud and other financial crimes case against Donald Trump for two years. A lot of the information has leaked out. I'm not a lawyer, but you know I know a lot about history and I know a lot about taxes. And it seems to me there's an open and shut case for tax fraud by Donald Trump. It's as clear as you could possibly imagine. What in the world are they doing sitting on this case for two years? I guarantee if you and I had done what Donald Trump had done, (laughs) we'd be in jail faster than you could say Mitch McConnell.
1: I was talking to a Democratic messaging guru the other day, and he- You mean they exist? They all are self-professed. They all think the others are not doing well. He said to me something which I hear a lot, which is, we need to stop focusing on Trump. Trump is a symptom of the problem. He's not the problem. And- while I think there's some truth to that, I think that he is a symptom, he took advantage of certain things going on. I <laughs> but I think pre-Trump, pre-Him ta- having taught this to people, perhaps, there was no other politician who would have tried to pursue all of these areas to break the democracy that Trump did. There's something unique to him, in my view.
0: I completely agree with that. You know, there there are Various schools of historical thought. One school is individuals really matter. The other school says, well, not so much, it's the broader trends of history. And I think there's truth to both. I do think prior to Trump, there was a lot of movement in this direction to already challenge our democracy, as I point out in my book, What's Been Done by Other Presidents. But you cannot discount the importance of Donald Trump as a world historical figure who has been uniquely threatening to our democracy and who has spread his poison throughout our society it's no longer just donald trump but donald trump has been instrumental in corrupting such a huge segment of our society you know particularly republicans but not just limited to republicans you know i'm not much of a follower of the polls as you know of my own prediction systems But I am astounded to see that Donald Trump still has the same approval rating he's always had.
1: He's actually doing better against Biden. He would probably win if he ran today.
0: It's just astounding. I don't understand why the American people don't see Donald Trump for who he is. And by the way, you know, as I also point out in my book, he's not just a threat to our democracy. He's a grifter. He's a thief. And he mostly steals money from his own supporters, such as these phony appeals to help him fight the election fraud, when in fact, you know, the vast bulk of that money is not going to lawyers or litigation or anything like that, but going right into his pocket. We've seen the same thing with his acolyte, Steve Bannon. You know, Bannon sets up this phony outfit that supposedly is collecting money to build the border wall, but again, the money's going right into his pocket. He's indicted for it. And guess what? Donald Trump pardons him because he's doing the same thing Donald Trump does. You know, Donald Trump has committed so many crimes, and not just as president, but throughout his career, as you know, I point out in my first earlier book, The Case for Impeachment, and he has never been held accountable for anything. So when you're not held accountable, you're not going to stop.
1: Tomorrow I'm interviewing Todd Gitlin, Jeff Isaac, and, and Bill Kristol, because they have this open letter in defense of democracy. I don't know if you saw it.
0: No, but I, I know what Bill Kristol's been saying.
1: It's another example of the intellectuals uh, like you and them and and others railing against this, this horrible risk that we have and these things that are going on.
0: Including a them. lot of former Republican officials and members of Congress.
1: What worries me is that... Historically, if you look at countries, that hasn't really been an effective method for stopping takeovers of countries, right? Like people writing books, people writing letters, people uh, forming groups to defend democracy with a couple million dollars. I'm following these efforts. I am behind them all. But I am worried as I, I know you are, that this inexorable ball is rolling in one direction. That if we have, if the economy's not going well, if COVID is still a problem in a two-party system, and that guy's going to get the nomination of his party, he's very likely to win again, unless things are going really you know, well. Incumbents get elected when things are going well. That's
0: my system, the 13 keys, which measures that. And that's exactly right. Trump could win again. You know, apropos of your point, which I totally agree with, the late great Andy Kaufman had this skit where he portrays this stiff upper lip Britisher. And his solution to every problem was a stern letter to the Times, you know, as if, you know, these kinds of things have any impact whatsoever. It's very sad, you know, all of us railing. We seem to be, you know, shouting against. The wind, it does not seem to be working. I want to pick up, though, on another important point you said, talking about your message guy. Another thing I've been frustrated about in the Democratic Party is not only the lack of a spine, but the lack of a message. You know, Democrats used to be the master of messaging, right? The New Deal, the New Frontier, the Bridge to the 21st Century, Hope and Change, you know, simple, compelling messages that could be issued in a phrase. Or two. I haven't seen that since 2008. What in the world is the k- simple, compelling message that the Democrats have for the American people?
1: What became clear with the Virginia governor election that just happened that message can't just be Trump supports this guy, or this guy's like Trump, or this is Trump again. You know, not. it has to be more than that. It it's got to be positive. Yep.
0: Well, gotta, it's gotta have a-, a positive message. Democrats have always succeeded with these pithy, important, positive messages. And if you look where Democrats have succeeded as well, you know, and the greatest example of this, of course, is the greatest Democrat of all, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Democrats have succeeded when they've delivered real benefits to the American people. And maybe you know, the infrastructure bill, which also was terribly messaged and passed in such a messy way. But maybe over time, uh, you know, benefits will flow to the American people and they'll begin to see, you know, how Democrats are actually helping them out in a very real way.
1: There does seem to be a pattern of major legislation taking a while to to redound to the benefit of the people passing it. It seems more likely to hurt you in the short run than to help you and then maybe help down the road. So we'll see on this.
0: Yeah, that's a very important point. Look at Obamacare, you know, the Affordable Care Act. Initially, in fact, for a year or two, maybe even more, the public opinion was we don't like the Affordable Care Act. But then as people began to realize, hey, this thing is really good. You know, when you expand uh, Medicaid, it helps millions of people. And public opinion turned around on Obamacare. But it took, you're right, it took a long time.
1: You mentioned that this former president profited out of being in the government. He did a couple things that, like, were not supposed to be done. Conflicts of interest.
0: That's one of my cracks.
1: Putting his, you know, kid in the White House and the business of taking money from foreign governments and making, you know, sending everyone to his resorts and golf courses and like clearly taking money out of your
0: pocket to pay for all that
1: too. Yep. This seems so minor compared to, to breaking the election laws or whatever, but why was it so easy to get away with?
0: As I said, you know, Trump is the most extraordinary figure in American history in terms of getting away with things, you know, He's gotten away with all of his nefarious schemes, all the way going back, as I point out, to the 1970s when he was nailed by the Department of Justice for racial discrimination against minorities in his rental properties in New York and faced no consequences, whatever for it, faced no consequences for illegally hiring undocumented immigrants to help clear the land for Trump Tower. Gets away with that entirely, has five bankruptcies, walks away from every one of those bankruptcies without any financial burden upon himself, leaving others, you know, holding the bag and gets away with all these conflicts. These are important. You know, the founding father said one of the biggest threats to our democracy is foreign influence. And when you are pocketing money and benefits from foreign governments, then it's impossible for the American people to know where your promotion of the national interest leaves off and your promotion of your personal interests take place, particularly for someone like Trump, who frankly doesn't care about the national interest, but cares a lot about enriching himself.
1: If he succeeds in coming back into power, if he wins either by getting more votes or by getting state legislatures to overturn votes and, and throw electoral college votes his way.
0: Not unrealistic.
1: <laughs> Not impossible. It's getting set up in, in a number of states right now that are controlled by Republicans and that are close states uh, electorally. What other cracks do you think might be punched through?
0: I think he's going to punch through all of them. One of the big cracks that he's already punched through, and I think will punch through a lot more, is this idea, and he's been explicit about it, that as president, there are no checks on him, that he can do anything he wants. If he wins again, heaven forbid, I'm sure he'll have a Republican Congress, which means there will be absolutely no constraints on this president. You know, Richard Nixon, who before Trump, you know, was probably the most scandal played president, at the beginning of his second term, told his confidants, all right, I don't have to worry about re-election again. I've got the power, and we're going to use the power to help our friends get rich and punish our enemies. That got thwarted by the Watergate scandal. But I think that's exactly what a new Trump presidency would try to to do. I also think you will get not just state laws, but now federal laws restricting the vote and making democratic elections impossible in the United States. Imagine the replication at the national level of what's being done in these Republican-controlled states.
1: If it's so easy to look ahead and see that, why the hell are we not preparing better
0: I am totally perplexed by that. As I said, there are big problems with the Democrats in terms of messaging, in terms of their spine, in terms of their divisions. But what really perplexes me is why the American people, the vast majority of them, don't see through this. It's all out there. It's all obvious. This isn't subtle. Trump is not subtle. He tells you exactly what he's going to do and, you know, does it in the open and does it uh, quite brazenly. I tear my hair. I don't understand why his approval rating is not 15%, not 43%. You know, I used to have great faith in the virtue and perspicacity of the American people. That's beginning to be shaken a little bit.
1: What has been the response from readers, from the public to your book?
0: Well, I haven't gotten a whole lot of response. It just came out this week, but uh, the reviews have been really terrific. You know, one of the reviews, I, I think, made the critical point that my book, 13 Cracks Repairing American Democracy After Trump, differs from all other Trump books in two absolutely important ways. And you put your finger on them. Number one, I go through history to put what Trump is doing in context and show why you know, Trump has more ruthlessly exploited these cracks than any other president. They've been exploited before, and they are still open to be exploited. And the other thing the reviewers pointed out that makes my book different, that you also put your finger on, is however difficult they may be to enact, I actually have practical solutions to the closing of every crack.
1: I've read a lot of books about Trump for this podcast and about the presidency. You have kind of a temptation to ask the author to rewrite the whole book orally <laughs> in, in the in the interview. You've taken a swing at a few of the cracks. What I really recommend to people in this case is get the book, read it, and pass it to your congressman or to someone like that. We have got to act... Everyone's not going to agree with all of the remedies for of all of not. the cracks. These are a swing at them that, you know, makes sense. But we've got to do something on so many fronts because there's, there's a decent chance that we're going to face the crack maker again soon.
0: Democracies die. They're very fragile. You know, I point out in the book, we had the golden age of democracy right after World War I we had, you know, more than two dozen democracies. By the 1940s, that was down to 11. Democracies can die. You know, I also cite uh, Sinclair Lewis's famous book, It Can't Happen Here. It can happen here. Or to use a terminology from the great Thomas Jefferson, this is a fire bell in the night, and everyone needs to heed that fire bell. And without being self-serving, I have to agree the best way to heed that fire bell is to read the 13 cracks repairing American democracy after Trump and look to the remedies.
1: Young people, people not steeped in democratic theory, people who are not aware of what it's like to live in a different kind of system may not grasp what the difference might be over time if we allow a strong man to control this country. What would you say would be the most concerning things that might change about the nature of the country?
0: Well, voters will no longer decide their own destiny. They will have their destiny decided for them. And no one will be safe. The hallmark of dictatorships, authoritarian countries, and you can look around the world anywhere you want, is that uh, they don't tolerate criticism. You know, when the communists took over Russia, they licensed all the typewriters to make sure no one would type out anything critical of the regime. They censored scientists, artists, uh, writers, journalists like you, to make sure they would not do anything critical of the regime. And you faced some pretty harsh penalties if you did so. And, you know, if you think I'm imagining this, just look at what's already been passed in a state like Texas. They have criminalized the administration of elections. So if some poor soul, you know, these are ordinary people who administer elections. You know, they're not all experts. Some poor soul makes a mistake or, you know, acts in a way that the regime doesn't like. They can be criminally prosecuted. So I could really see the whole criminal justice system and you know i point out corrupting justice is is one of the cracks to simply exonerate all criminal activities on the part of the allies of the regime and then
1: criminally punish the critics he already has pardoned a ton of people who didn't deserve pardons who are criminals including by the way and this isn't well known but it's in
0: the book perhaps the some of the worst criminals in our history those guards who massacred a huge number of people uh, abroad, unarmed people, one of the worst mass
1: massacres in our history? And he pardoned them. He wants to be Putin. He wants to be a guy like that. He wants to. He loves Putin. Yeah, he wants to serve till the end of his life and then pass it on to his children, like you would in a monarchy.
0: You know, you were talking about the young people and, you know, how to bring this home. Look to Russia. Do you really
1: want to live in a place like Russia? They don't know what Russia's like. They, you know, the, I know, they don't, it, and it's awful. It's terrible. It's encouraging and positive to talk to you. <laughs> but I, I have to admit that my level of worry about the country is just at a very high pitch. It should be. That's
0: why I wrote the book.
1: I appreciate you writing the book, and I hope to see more coming from you. appreciate you taking the time with me today.
0: This was an awesome talk. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Thanks, Alan. That was Professor Alan Lichtman of American University. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.